0: Part 1, Chapter 2, Section 2 Of No More Parades This Librivox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan Part 1, Chapter 2, Section 2 His eyes met the non-committal glance of a dark, gentlemanly thin fellow with a strikingly scarlet hat-band, a lot of gilt about his khaki and little strips of steel-chain armour on his shoulders. Levin. Colonel Levin, GSO2 or something, attached to the general, Lord Edward Campion. How the hell did fellows get into these intimacies of commanders of units and their men? Swimming in like fishes into the brown air of a tank, and there at your elbow, spies. The men had all been called to attention, and stood like gasping codfish. The ever-watchful Sergeant Major Cowley had drifted to his teach elbow. You protect your officers from the gaudy staff as you protect your infant daughters in Lambswall from draughts. The dark, bright, cheerful staff-waller said with a slight lisp, Busy, I see. He might have been standing there for a century and have a century of the battalion headquarters time to waste like that. What draught is this? Sergeant Major Cowley, always ready in case his officer should not know the name of his unit or his own name, said, Number 16, IBD, Canadian, 1st Division, Casual, Number 4, Draft, sir. Colonel Levin let air lispingly out between his teeth. Number 16, Draft, not off yet. Dear, 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 dear. We should be strafed to hell by 1st Army. He used the word hell as if he had first wrapped it in eau de cologne cotton wadding. Teachens on his feet, knew this fellow very well. A fellow who had been a very bad society watercolour painter of good family on the mother's side, hence the cavalry gadgets on his shoulders. Would it then be good, say, good taste, to explode? He let the sergeant-major do it. Sergeant-major Cowley was of the type of NCO who carried weight because he knew ten times as much about his job as any staff-officer. The sergeant-major explained that it had been impossible to get off the draft earlier, the colonel said. But surely, sergeant-major... The sergeant-major, now a deferential shopwalker in a lady's store, pointed out that they had had urgent instructions not to send up the draft without the 400 Canadian railway servicemen who were to come from Etapla. These men had only arrived that evening at 5.30 at the railway station... Matching them up had taken three-quarters of an hour. The colonel said, "'But surely, Sergeant Major!' Old Cowley might as well have said "'Madame, as sir,' to the red hat-band. The four hundred had come with only what they stood up in. The unit had had to wangle everything— boots, blankets, toothbrushes, braces, rifles, iron rations, identity discs out of the depot's store. And it was now only twenty-one-twenty— Cowley permitted his commanding officer at this point to say, "'You must understand that we work in circumstances of extreme difficulty, sir.' The graceful colonel was lost in an absent contemplation of his perfectly elegant knees. "'I know, of course,' he lisped, "'very difficult.' He brightened up to add, "'But you must admit, you unfortunate—you must admit that—' The weight settled, however, again on his mind. Teechan said, "'Not, I suppose, sir, any more unfortunate "'than any other unit working under the dual control for supplies." "'The colonel said, "'What's that? Dual? "'Ah, I see you're there, Mackenzie. "'Feeling well, feeling fit, eh?' "'The whole hut stood silent. "'His anger at the waste of time made Teechan say, "'If you understand, sir, we are a unit whose principal purpose "'is drawing things to equip draughts with.' This fellow was delaying them atrociously. He was brushing his knees with a handkerchief. "'I've had,' Teachin said, "'a man killed on my hands this afternoon "'because we have to draw tin hats for my orderly room "'from Dublin on an AFB Canadian from Aldershot. "'Killed here. "'We've only just mopped up the blood from where you're standing.' The cavalry colonel exclaimed, "'Oh, goodness gracious me!' "'Jumped a little and examined his beautiful, "'shining knee-high aircraft boot. "'Killed? Here. Yeah. But there'll have to be a court of inquiry. You certainly are most unfortunate, Captain Teechins. Always these mysterious. Why wasn't your man in a dugout? Most unfortunate. We cannot have casualties among the colonial troops. Uh, troops from the Dominions, I mean.' Teechins said grimly, "'The man was from pont Adulay, not from any Dominion, one of my orderly room.' We're forbidden on pain of court martial to let any but Dominion Expeditionary Force men go into the dugouts. My Canadians were all there. It's an ACI local of the eleventh of November. The staff officer said. It makes, of course, a difference, only a show, you say? Oh well. But these mysterious he exclaimed with the force of an explosion and the relief. Look here, can you spare possible ten, twenty? minutes it's not exactly a service matter so Teachins teachens exclaimed you see how we're situated colonel and like one sowing grass seed on a lawn extended both hands over his papers and towards his men he was choking with rage colonel levin had under the chaperonage of an english dowager who ran a chocolate store down on the quays in rouen a little french piece to whom he was quite seriously engaged in the most naive manner and the young woman, fantastically jealous, managed to make endless insults to herself out of her almost-too-handsome colonel's barbaric French. It was an idyll, but it drove the colonel frantic. At such times Levin would consult teachings, who passed for a man of brains and a French scholar, as to really nicely turned compliments in a difficult language. And, as to how you explained that it was necessary for a GSO2, or whatever the colonel was, to be seen quite frequently in the company of very handsome VADs and female organisers of all arms, it was a sort of silliness as to which no gentleman ought to be consulted. And here was Levin with a familiar feminine agonised wrinkle on his bronzed alabaster brow like a beastly soldier man out of a review. Why didn't the ass burst into gesture and a throaty tenor? sergeant-major cowley naturally saved the situation just as Teachins was as near saying go to hell as you can be to your remarkably senior officer on parade the sergeant-major now a very important solicitor's most confidential clerk began whispering to the colonel the captain might as well take a spell as not we're through with all the men except the canadian railway batch and they can't be issued with blankets not for half an hour not for three-quarters if then it depends if our runner can find where Quarter's Lance Corporal is having his supper to issue them. The Sergeant Major had inserted that last speech deftly. The staff officer, with a vague reminiscence of his regimental days, exclaimed, Damn it, I wonder if you don't break into the depot blanket store and take what you want. The Sergeant Major, becoming Simon Pure, exclaimed, Oh no, sir, we could never do that, sir. But the confounded men are urgently needed in the line, Colonel Levin said. Damn it, it's touch and go. We're rushing. He appreciated the fact again that he was on the Gordy staff, and that the sergeant major and teachers, playing like left backs into each other's hands, had trickily let him in. We can only pray, sir, the sergeant major said, that these ere bloomin' un's has got quartermasters and depots and issuing departments same as ourselves he lowered his voice into a husky whisper besides sir there's a rumour round the telephone in depot orderly room that there's a W.O. order at headquarters countermanding this and other draughts colonel levin said oh my god and consternation rushed upon both him and titchin's the frozen ditches in the night out there the agonised waiting for men the weight upon the mind like a weight upon the brows The imminent sense of approaching unthinkableness on the right or the left, according as you looked up or down the trench. The solid protecting earth of the parapet then turns into pierced mist, and no reliefs coming from here. The men up there thinking naively that they were coming, and they not coming. Why not? Good God, why not? Mackenzie said poor blank old bird his crowd has been in eleven weeks last wednesday about all they could stick they'll have to stick a damn lot more colonel levin said i'd like to get at some of the brutes it was at that date the settled conviction of his majesty's expeditionary force that the army in the field was the tool of politicians and civilians in moments of routine that cloud dissipated itself lightly when news of ill omen arrived it settled down again heavily like a cloud of black gas you hung your head impotently so that the sergeant-major said cheerfully the captain could very well spare half an hour to get his dinner or for anything else Apart from the domestic desire that Teachin's digestion should not suffer from irregular meals, he had the professional conviction that for his captain to be in intimate private converse with a member of the Gordy staff was good for the unit. I suppose, sir, he added valedictorily to Teachin's, I'd better arrange to put this draft and the nine hundred men that came in this afternoon to replace them, twenty in a tent. It's lucky we didn't strike them. Teachins and the Colonel began to push men out of their way, going towards the door. The inner skilling Canadian, a small open brown book extended deprecatingly, stood, modestly obtrusive, just beside the doorpost. Catching avidly at Teachin's, eh? He said, You'd got the names of the girls wrong in your copy, sir. It was Gwen Lewis I had a child buy an abbast with, that I wanted to have the lease of the cottage in the ten bob a week. "'Mrs. Hosier that I lived with in Berwick St. James, "'she was only to have five guineas for a souvenir. "'I've took the liberty of changing the names back again.' "'Teachins grabbed the book from him "'and bending down at the Sergeant Major's table "'scrawled his signature on the bluish page. "'He thrust the book back at the man and said, "'There, fall out.' "'The man's face shone. "'He exclaimed, "'Thank you, sir. Thank you kindly, Captain. "'I wanted to get off and go to confession. "'I did bad.' The McGill graduate, with his arrogant black moustache, put himself in the way as Teachin struggled into his British warm. You won't forget, sir, he began. Teachin said, damn you, I've told you I won't forget, I never forget. You instructed the ignorant Jap in Asaki, but the educational authority is in Tokyo, and your flagitious mineral water company had their headquarters at the Ten Sen Spring near Kobe. Is that right? Well, I'll do my best for you. They walked in silence through the groups of men that hung round the orderly room door and gleamed in the moonlight. In the broad country street of the main line of the camp, Colonel Levin began to mutter between his teeth, "'You take enough trouble with your beastly crowd? A whole lot of trouble, yet... "'Well, what's the matter with us?' Teachin said. "'We get our drafts ready in thirty-six hours, "'less than any other unit in this command.' "'I know you do,' the other conceded. "'It's only all these mysterious rows.' "'Now,' Teachin said quickly, "'do you mind my asking, are we still on parade? "'Is this a strafe from General Campion as to the way I command my unit?' "'The other conceded quite as quickly and much more worriedly. "'Good God!' he added more quickly still, "'Old Bean!' "'and prepared to tuck his wrist under Teachin's elbow. Teachin's, however, continued to face the fellow. "'He was really in a temper. "'Then tell me,' he said, "'how the deuce can you manage to do without an overcoat in this weather?' If only he could get the chap off the topic of his mysterious rows, they might drift to the matter that had brought him up there on that bitter night, when he should be sitting over a good wood fire, philandering with Mademoiselle Nanette de Baye. He sank his neck deeper into the sheepskin collar of his British warm. The other, slim, was with all his badges, ribbons and mail, shining darkly in a cold that set all teaching's teeth chattering like porcelain. Levin became momentarily animated. "'You should do as I do, regular hours, lots of exercise, horse exercise. "'I do PT every morning at the open window of my room, hardening.' "'It must be very gratifying for the ladies in the rooms facing yours,' "'teachin,' said grimly. "'Is that what's the matter with Mademoiselle Nanette now? "'I haven't got time for proper exercise.' "'Good gracious, no," the Colonel said.' He now tucked his hand firmly under Teachin's arm, and began to work him towards the left hand of the road, in the direction leading out of camp. Teachins worked their steps as firmly towards the right, and they leant one against the other. In fact, old Bean, the Colonel said, Campy is working so hard to get the command of a fighting army, though he's indispensable here, that we might pack up bag and baggage any day. That is what has made Nanette see reason then what am i doing in this show tichens asked but colonel levin continued blissfully in fact i've got her almost practically for certain to promise that next week or the week after next at latest she'll damn it she'll name the happy day Teachin said good hunting how splendidly victorian that's damn it, the colonel exclaimed manfully, what I say to myself. Victorian is what it is. All these marriage settlements and what is it? droit de Seigneur and Notaire, and the count having his say and the marchioness and two old grand aunts but hoopla He executed, with his gloved right thumb in the moonlight, a rapid pirouette. Next week or at least the week after his voice suddenly dropped. At least, he wavered, that was what it was at lunchtime. Since then, something happened. You've not been caught in bed with a V.A.D., Teachins asked. The colonel mumbled, no, not in bed, not with a V.A.D. Oh, damn it, at the railway station, with... The general sent me down to meet her. And Nanny, of course, was seeing off her grandmother, the Duchess. The giddy cut she handed me out teachens became coldly furious then it was over one of your beastly imbecile rows with mr bailly that you got me out here he exclaimed do you mind going down with me towards the i b d headquarters your final orders may have come in there the sappers won't let me have a telephone so i have to look in there the last thing he felt a yearning towards rooms in huts warmed by coke stoves and electrically lit, with acting lance corporals bending over AFBs on a background of deal pigeonholes filled with returns on buff and blue paper. You got quiet and engrossment there. It was a queer thing. The only place where he, Christopher Teachins of Groby, could be absently satisfied was in some orderly room or other. The only place in the world. And why? It was a queer thing. But not queer, really. It was a matter of inevitable selection, if you came to think it out. An acting orderly room lance-corporal was selected for his penmanship, his power of elementary figuring, his trustworthiness amongst innumerable figures and messages, his dependability. For this he differed a hair's breadth in rank from the rake and file, a hair-breadth that was to him the difference between life and death. For if he proved not to be dependable, back he went, returned to duty as long as he was dependable he slept under a table in a warm room his toilette arrangements and washing in a bully-beef case near his head a billy full of tea always stewing for him on an always burning stove a paradise no not a paradise the paradise of the other ranks he might be awakened at one in the morning miles away the enemy might be beginning a strafe He would roll out from among the blankets under the table, amongst the legs of hurrying NCOs and officers, the telephone going like hell. He would have to manifold innumerable short orders on buff slips on a typewriter. A bore to be awakened at one in the morning, but not unexciting. The enemy putting up a tremendous barrage in front of the village of Dranoutre. the whole 19th Division to be moved into support along the bayeux road, in case... Teachings considered the sleeping army. That country village under the white moon, all of sackcloth sides, celluloid windows, forty men to a hut. That slumbering Arcadia was one of, how many? Thirty seven thousand five hundred, say, for a million and a half of men, but there were probably more than a million and a half in that base. Well, round the slumbering Arcadias were the fringes of virginly glimmering tents, fourteen men to a tent. For a million, 71,421 tenths round, say, 150 IBDs, CBDs, REBDs, base depot for infantry, cavalry, sappers, gunners, airmen, anti-airmen, telephone men, vets, chiropodists, Royal Army Service Corps men, pigeon servicemen, sanitary service men, women's auxiliary army corps women, VAD women, what in the world did VAD stand for? canteens, rest-tent attendants, barrack damage superintendents, parsons, priests, rabbis, mormon bishops, brahmins, lamas, imams, Fanti men, no doubt, for African troops, and already dependent on the acting orderly room lance-corporals for their temporal and spiritual salvation. For if by a slip of the pen a lance-corporal sent a papist priest to an Ulster regiment, the Ulster men would lynch him and all go to hell or if by a slip of the tongue at the telephone or a slip of the typewriter he sent a division to west Utre instead of to dranutra at one in the morning the six or seven thousand poor devils in front of dranutra might all be massacred and nothing but his majesty's navy could save us yet in the end all this tangle was satisfactorily unravelled the draughts moved off unknotting themselves like snakes coiling out of inextricable bunches sliding vertebrately over the mud to dip into their bowls the rabbis found jews dying to whom to administer the vets spavined mules the v a d s men without jaws and shoulders in c c s s the camp-cookers frozen beef, the chiropodists ingrowing toenails, the dentists decayed molars, the naval howitzers camouflaged emplacements in picturesquely wooded dingles. Somehow they got there, even to the pots of strawberry jam by the ten dozen. For if the acting lance-corporal, whose life hung by a hair, made a slip of the pen over a dozen pots of jam, back he went, returned to duty back to the frozen rifle the ground sheet on the liquid mud the desperate suction on the ankle as the foot was advanced the landscape silhouetted with broken church towers the continual drone of the plains the mazes of duckboards in vast plains of slime the unending cockney humour the great shells labelled love to little willie back to the angel with the flaming sword the wrong side of him so on the whole things moved satisfactorily he was walking colonel levin imperiously between the huts towards the mess quarters their feet crunching on the freezing gravel the colonel hanging back a little but a mere lightweight and without nails in his elegant boot soles so he had no grip on the ground he was remarkably silent whatever he wanted to get out he was reluctant to come to he brought out however "'I wonder you don't apply to be returned to duty to your battalion. "'I jolly well should if I were you.' "'Teachin said, "'Why? "'Because I've had a man killed on me. "'There must have been a dozen killed tonight.' "'Oh, more very likely,' the other answered. "'It was one of our own planes that was brought down. "'But it isn't that. "'Oh, damn it. "'Would you mind walking the other way? "'I've the greatest respect. "'Oh, almost, for you personally. "'You're a man of intellect.' was reflecting on a nice point of military etiquette. This lisping, ineffectual fellow, he was a very careful staff officer, or campion would not have had him about the place, was given to moulding himself exactly on his general, physically, in costume as far as possible, in voice, for his lisp is not his own, so much as an adaptation of the general's slight stutter, and above all in his uncompleted sentences and point of view. Now, if he said, look here, Colonel, or look here, Colonel Levin, or look here, Stanley, my boy, for the one thing an officer may not say to a superior, whatever their intimacy was, look here, Levin, if he said then, look here, Stanley, you're a silly ass, it's all very well for Campion to say that I am unsound because I've some brains, he's my godfather and has been saying it to me since I was twelve and had more brain in my left heel than he had in the whole of his beautifully barbered skull but when you say it you are just a parrot you did not think that out for yourself you do not even think it you know i'm heavy short in the wind and self-assertive but you know perfectly well that i'm as good on detail as yourself and a damned sight more you've never caught me tripping over a return your sergeant in charge of returns may have but not you if teachens should say that to this popinjay. Would that be going further than an officer in charge of detachment should go with a member of the staff set above him, though not on parade, and in a conversation of intimacy? Off parade, and in intimate conversation, all his majesty's poor blank officers are equals, gentlemen having his majesty's commission. There can be no higher rank, and all that build. For how off parade could this descendant of an old clo man from Frankfurt be the equal of him, Ditchons of Groby? He wasn't his equal in any way, let alone socially. If Teachins hit him he would drop dead. If he addressed a little sneering remark to Levin, the fellow would melt so that you would see the old spluttering dew swimming up through his carefully arranged gentile features. He couldn't shoot as well as Teachins or ride or play a hand at auction. Why, damn it, he Teachins hadn't the least doubt that he could paint better watercolour pictures. And as for returns, he would undertake to tear the guts out of half a dozen new and contradictory ACIs, Army Council instructions, and write twelve correct command orders founded on them before Levin had lisped out the date and serial number of the first one. He had done it several times up in the room, arranged like a French bluestocking salon where Levin worked at Garrison Headquarters. He had written Levin's blessed command order, while Levin fussed and fumed about their being delayed for tea with Mademoiselle de Bailly, and curled his delicate moustache. Mademoiselle de Badley, chaperoned by old lady Sash, had tea by a clear wood fire in an eighteenth-century octagonal room with blue-grey tapestry walls and powdering closets, out of priceless porcelain cups without handles. Pale tea that tasted faintly of cinnamon, mademoiselle de bailly was a long dark high-coloured provencal not heavy but precisely long slow and cruel coiled in a deep armchair, saying the most wounding slow things to Levin, she resembled a white persian cat luxuriating sticking out a tentative paw full of expanding claws with eyes slanting pronouncedly upwards and a very thin hooked nose almost japanese and with a terrific cortege of relatives, swell in a French way, one brother a chauffeur to a marshal of France, an aristocratic way of shirking. With all that, obviously even off-parade, you might well be the social equal of a staff-colonel, but you jolly well had to keep from showing that you were his superior, especially intellectually. If you let yourself show a staff-officer that he was a silly ass, you could say it as often as you liked, as long as you didn't prove it. You could be certain that you would be for it before long, and quite properly. It was not English to be intellectually adroit. Nay, it was positively un-English. And the duty of field officers is to keep messes as English as possible. So a staff officer would take it out of such a regimental inferior, in a perfectly creditable way. You would never imagine the hash headquarters warrant officers would make of your returns until you were worried and badgered, and in the end either you were ejected into or prayed to be transferred to any other command in the whole service. And that was beastly. The process, not the effect. On the whole, Teachins did not care where he was or what he did, as long as he kept out of England, the thought of that country at night slumbering across the Channel being sentimentally unbearable to him. Still... He was fond of old Campion and would rather be in his command than any other. he had attached to his staff a very decent set of fellows, as decent as you could be in contact with if you had to be in contact with your own kind. So he just said, Look here, Stanley, you're a silly ass, and left it at that, without demonstrating the truth of the assertion. The colonel said, Why, what have I been doing now? I wish you would walk the other way. Teachin said, no i can't afford to go out of camp i've got to come to witness your fantastic wedding contract tomorrow afternoon haven't i i can't leave camp twice in one week you've got to come down to the camp guard levin said i hate to keep a woman waiting in the cold though she is in the general's car teachens exclaimed you've not been oh extraordinarily enough to bring mr bai out here to talk to me "'Colonel Levin mumbled, so low teachins almost imagined that he was not meant to hear. "'It isn't Mr. Bay. then he exclaimed, quite aloud, "'Damn it all, Teachins! Haven't you had hints enough?' "'For a lunatic moment it went through Teachin's mind that it must be Miss Wannop in the general's "'car at the gate, down the hill beside the camp guard-room. "'But he knew folly when it presented itself to his mind.' He had nevertheless turned, and they were going very slowly back along the broad way, between the huts. Levin was certainly in no hurry. The broad way would come to an end of the hutments, about two acres of slope would descend blackly before them, white stones to mark a sort of coastguard track, glimmering out of sight beneath a moon gone dark with the frost and down there, in the dark forest, at the end of that track, in a terrific Rolls-Royce, was waiting something of which Levin was certainly deuced afraid. For a minute, Tichin's backbone stiffened. He didn't intend to interfere between Mademoiselle de Baye and any married woman Levin had had as a mistress. Somehow he was convinced that what was in that car was a married woman. He did not dare to think otherwise. If it was not a married woman, it might be Miss Warnop, if it was it it couldn't be an immense waft of calm sentimental happiness had descended upon him merely because he had imagined her he imagined her little fair rather pug-nosed face under a fur cap he did not know why leaning forward she would be on the seat of the general's illuminated car glazed in a regular rare show peering out short-sightedly on account of the reflections on the inside of the glass he was saying to Levin, "'Look here, Stanley, why I said you're a silly ass "'is because Mr. Baye has one chief luxury. "'It's exhibiting jealousy. "'Not feeling it, exhibiting it.' "'What you?' Levin asked, ironically, "'to discuss my fiancé before me, "'as an English gentleman, teachins of Groby and all?' "'Why, of course, Teachin said,' he continued feeling happy, "'as a sort of swollen best man, it's my duty to instruct you. Mothers tell their daughters things before marriage. Best men do it for the innocent Benedict. And you're always consulting me about the young woman. I'm not doing it now, Levin grumbled direly. Then what in God's name are you doing? You've got a cast mistress, haven't you, down there in old Campion's car. They were beside the alley that led down to his orderly room. Knots of men, dim and desultory, still half-filled it a little way down. "'I haven't,' Levin exclaimed, almost tearfully. "'I never had a mistress.' "'And you're not married?' Teachins asked. He used, on purpose, the schoolboy's ejaculation, "'Lamy,' to soften the job. "'If you'll excuse me,' he said, "'I must just go and take a look at my crowd, "'to see if your orders have come down.' He found no orders in a hut as full as ever of the dull mists and odours of khaki, but he found in revenge a fine, upstanding, blonde, Canadian-born Lance Corporal of old colonial lineage with a moving story as related by Sergeant Major Cowley. This man, sir, of the Canadian railway lot, his mother just turned up in the town, come on from Etaple. come all the way from Toronto where she was bedridden. Teachin said, well, what about it, get a move on. The man wanted leave to go to his mother, who was waiting in a decent estaminé at the end of the tram-line just outside the camp where the houses of the town began. Teachin said, It's impossible, it's absolutely impossible, you know that. The man stood erect and expressionless. His blue eyes looked confoundedly honest to Teechan's, who was cursing himself. He said to the man, You can see for yourself that it's impossible, can't you? The man said slowly, Not knowing the regulations in these circumstances, I can't say, sir, but my mother's is a very special case. She's lost two sons already, Teechan said. A great many people have. Do you understand? If you went absent off my pass, I might, I quite possibly might lose my commission. I'm responsible for you fellows getting up the line. The man looked down at his feet. Teechan said to himself that it was Valentine Warnup doing this to him. He ought to turn the man down at once. He was pervaded by a sense of her being. It was imbecile, yet it was so. He said to the man, You said good-bye to your mother, didn't you, in Toronto, before you left? The man said no, sir. He had not seen his mother in seven years. He had been up in the Chilkoot when war broke out and had not heard of it for ten months. Then he had at once joined up in British Columbia and had been sent straight through for railway work onto Aldershot where the Canadians had a camp in building. He had not known that his brothers were killed till he got there and his mother, being bedridden at the news, had not been able to get to Toronto when his batch had passed through. She lived about 60 miles from Toronto. Now she had risen from her bed like a miracle and come all the way. A widow, 62 years of age, very feeble, It occurred to Teachins, as it occurred to him ten times a day, that it was idiotic of him to figure Valentine one up to himself. He had not the slightest idea where she was, in what circumstances, or even in what house. He did not suppose she and her mother had stayed on in that dog kennel of a place in Bedford Park. They would be fairly comfortable. His father had left them money. It is preposterous, he said to himself, to persist in figuring a person to yourself when you have no idea of where they are. He said to the man, wouldn't it do if you saw your mother at the camp gate by the guard room? Not much of a leave-taking, sir, the man said. She's not allowed in the camp and I not allowed out, talking under a sentry's nose, very likely. Teachin said to himself, what a monstrous absurdity this is of seeing and talking for a minute or so. You meet and talk, and the next day at the same hour, nothing. As well not to meet or talk, yet the mere fantastic idea of seeing Valentine Wanup for a minute. She was not allowed in the camp, and he not going out, talking under a sentry's nose, very likely, and it made him smell primroses, primroses, like Miss Wanup. He said to the sergeant major, What sort of a fellow is this? cowley in open-mouthed suspense gasped like a fish teach said i suppose your mother is fairly feeble to stand in the cold a very decent man sir the sergeant-major got out one of the best no trouble a perfectly clean conduct sheet very good education a railway engineer in civil life volunteered of course sir "'That's the odd thing,' Teachin said to the man, "'that the percentage of absentees is as great amongst the volunteers "'as the derby men or the compulsorily enlisted. "'Do you understand what will happen to you if you miss the draft?' "'The man said soberly, "'Yes, sir, perfectly well. "'You understand that you will be shot, "'as certainly as that you stand there, "'and that you haven't a chance of escape?' "'He wondered what Valentine Wannup, hot pacifist, "'would think of him if she heard him. Yet it was his duty to talk like that, his human, not merely his military duty. As much his duty as that of a doctor to warn a man that if he drank of typhoid-contaminated water, he would get typhoid. But people are unreasonable. Valentine, too, was unreasonable. She would consider it brutal to speak to a man of the possibility of his being shot by a firing party. A groan burst from him at the thought that there was no sense in bothering about what Valentine would or would not think of him. No sense, no sense, no sense. The man, fortunately, was assuring him that he knew very soberly all about the penalty for going absent off a draft. The sergeant major, catching a sound from Teachin, said with admirable fussiness to the man, "'There, there, don't you hear the officer speaking? Never interrupt an officer!' You'll be shot, Teachin said, at dawn, literally at dawn. Why did they shoot them at dawn? To rub it in that they were never going to see another sunrise. But they drugged the fellow so that they wouldn't know the sun if they saw it, all roped in a chair. It was really the worst for the firing party. He added to the man, Don't think I'm insulting you. You appear to be a very decent fellow, but very decent fellows have gone absent. He said to the sergeant major, "'Give this man a two-hours pass to go to whatever's the name of the estaminé. "'The draft won't move off for two hours, will it?' "'He added to the man, "'If you see your draft passing the pub, you run out and fall in, like mad, you understand? "'You'd never get another chance.' "'There was a mumble-like applause and envy of a mate's good luck "'from a packed audience that had hung on the lips of simple melodrama.' An audience that seemed to be all enlarged eyes, the khaki was so colourless. They came as near applause as they dared, but there was no sense in worrying about whether Valentine Wanup would have applauded or not. And there was no knowing whether the fellow would not go absent either. As likely as not, there was no mother, a girl very likely, and very likely the man would desert. The man looked you straight in the eyes, but a strong passion like that for escape or a girl... "'will give you control over the muscles of the eyes. "'A little thing that before strong passion. "'One would look God in the face on the day of judgment and lie in that case. "'Because what the devil did he want to Valentine Wannop? "'Why could he not stall off the thought of her? "'He could stall off the thought of his wife, or his not-wife. "'But Valentine Wannop came wriggling in at all hours of the day and night. "'It was an obsession, a madness.' what those fools called a complex, due no doubt to something your nurse had done or your parents said to you at birth. A strong passion, or no doubt not strong enough. Otherwise he too would have gone absent, at any rate from Sylvia, which he hadn't done. Or hadn't he? There was no saying. It was undoubtedly colder in the alley between the huts. A man was saying, Hoo, hoo, hoo. A sound like that, and flapping his arms and hopping. Hand and foot marked time. Somebody ought to fall these poor devils in and give them that to keep their circulation going. But they might not know the command. It was a guard's trick, really. What the devil were these fellows kept hanging about here for, he asked. One or two voices said they did not know. The majority said gutturally, Waiting for our mate, sir. I should have thought you could have waited under cover," Titchin said caustically. But never mind, it's your funeral if you like it. This getting together, a strong passion. There was a warmed reception hut for waiting draughts, not fifty yards away, but they stood, teeth chattering and mumbling, "Ooh, ooh," rather than miss thirty seconds of gabble. About what the English sergeant major said, and about what the officer said, and how many dollars did they give you, and of course about what you answered back, or perhaps not that. These Canadian troops were husky, serious fellows, without the swank of the Cockney or the Lincolnshire Moonrakers. They wanted, apparently, to learn the rules of war. They discussed anxiously information that they received in orderly rooms, and looked at you as if you were expounding the Gospels. But, damn it, he he himself would make a pact with destiny at that moment, willingly to pass thirty months in the frozen circle of hell for the chance of thirty seconds in which to tell Valentine Wannup what he had answered back to destiny. What was the fellow in the inferno who was buried to the neck in ice and begged Dante to clear the icicles out of his eyelids so that he could see out of them? And Dante kicked him in the face because he was a Ghibelline, Always a bit of a swine, Dante. Rather like... like whom? Oh, Sylvia Teachens, a good hater. He imagined hatred coming to him in waves from the convent in which Sylvia had immured herself, gone into retreat. He imagined she had gone into retreat. She had said she was going. For the rest of the war, for the duration of hostilities or life, whichever were the longer. He imagined Sylvia coiled up on a convent bed, hating, her certainly glorious hair all round her, hating, slowly and coldly, like the head of a snake when you examined it, eyes motionless, mouth closed tight, looking away into the distance and hating. She was presumably in Birkenhead, a long way to send your hatred across a country and a sea in an icy night over all that black land and water with the lights out because of air raids and U-boats. Well, he did not have to think of Sylvia at the moment. She was well out of it. It was certainly getting no warmer as the night drew on. Even that ass leaven was pacing swiftly up and down in the dusky moon shadows of the last hutments that looked over the slope and the vanishing trail of white stones. In spite of his boasting about not wearing an overcoat to catch women's eyes with his pretty staff gadgets, he was carrying on like a leopard at feeding time. Teachin said, "Sorry to keep you waiting, old man, or rather your lady, but there were some men to see to, and you know the comfort and what is it of the men comes before every is a consideration except the exigencies of actual warfare. My memory's gone fut these days. And you want me to slide down this hill and wheeze back again to see a woman? Levin screeched, damn you, you ass, it's your wife who's waiting for you at the bottom there. End of part one, chapter two, section two.